Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening in Europe. Specifically, the NDC Mini Conference, February 22nd through the 24th in Copenhagen, Denmark. Our friends Dominic Bayer, Rob Connery, Scott Allen, and Michelle Bustamante will be there. As well as Mark Seaman, Evelita Gabasova, and Eric Vullum. They've got workshops on ASP.NET Core, microservices, identity server, machine learning, and Angular 2. So go to cph.ndcmini.com and register now. And for more great NDC conferences, go to ndcconferences.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1390, with guest Justin James. Recorded Friday, December 2nd, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here for another hour of .NET goodness. And uh, Justin James is going to be here in just a few minutes. But first, my friend, uh, this is, I haven't been in the recording booth in a long time. Usually I record right outside in the big room in the studio. Yeah, in the main sort of main control space you've got. That's, yeah. It's really a mixed down space, but everything sort of in, goes there. Yeah, and it's soundproof for the most part, except when big backhoes and stuff start driving around right outside the building. So right. that's what's happened. And we got a little delayed because of that. So, you know, first world problems. Yeah, yeah. And, but you know, you always sound perfect, right? Like they, I couldn't tell that you're in the booth, you're out of the booth. Well, yeah, but you're on the phone with me now. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, it does. It's true. We, we have good stuff here in a good environment and that makes a big difference. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got something very interesting, but not for the reason you might think. Oh, for better know framework. So roll awesome. the crazy music. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, so I want to bring your attention to uh, something that crossed my desk because it's trending. And uh, I'm not sure how old this is or how long it's been a thing, but in the Ruby on Rails uh, community, it's it's pretty popular, and even among just the web community in general. Mm -hmm. It's forestadmin.com. So okay. Forest is the name of the product. And it's basically a build a business backend wizard type of thing. Hmm. And you get all this administration stuff. You get a big admin site with all sorts of features that you would expect, you know, user management features, uh, um, you know, sales and, and uh, payments and all sorts of great stuff that just about every business needs, like plumbing for businesses, right? Interesting. But that's not why it's cool. I mean, that's cool in and of itself. But if you take a look at the pricing model, this is what is really interesting to me. There's two levels of pricing. One, free features, everything, right. unlimited. All right. And then the other pricing model is call us if you want a personal engineer and support representative. So if you want help implementing it and support services. Right. Then we'll charge you. Right. But if you can figure out how to do this stuff without bothering us, have at it. And you knock yourself out. Cost Free. us nothing, cost you nothing, right? Isn't that crazy? That's really interesting. But it is an interesting model. I mean, you think about where the friction comes in business. It's when you have to stop, you know, a, a $200 an hour developer from actually writing code to talk to a customer. You, you know what I'm saying? Which is yeah. good for business, but it's bad for your productivity. So, you know, this is a, a nice way to solve that problem. Really interesting. Okay. And it's just a whole suite of tools that most apps are going to need anyway. That's so. right. Yeah. It's interesting for that as well. But uh, I thought that pricing model was just really fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good find, buddy. It's yeah. worth, worth looking at. Worth looking at. Well, who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1158, the one we did back in June of 2015 with Justin, when we were talking about managing VMs top to bottom with Vagrant, Boxstarter, Chocolatey, and NuGet. Yep. And this comment comes from Joel Gallagher, who says, Great show. I'll be sure to check out these tools to speed up my VM management. One excellent free tool for managing installs of general utilities is Ninite.com. Hmm. You pick from a nice list of common utilities, and it will bundle up the installer file for you to run in the background. No browser toolbars or unwanted junk. Huh. The beauty of this is that you run the same installer again in the future. It'll check all the updates and silently install these. It works great for non-technical people whose browsers end up slowly being taken over by toolbars and 
crapware. Hmm. So I've spent a little time with Ninite, and uh, this is very cool. Like literally, you go to the page and you click on "I want to run Chrome" and Skype and you know all the different tools that you want, yeah. and it just has an installer for you. Right, it basically builds a custom installer, and that's all you need to run, and it handles the updates and everything. So, and is that a chocolatey installer? I, I don't know what it is under the hood. Chocolatey package. Just one of those clever tools for being able to uh, to keep all that stuff consistent. And wow. it's lots of subtle things, like you know what K Lite is. The K Lite codecs. It's just like that's all the video codecs packaged together without oh any crapware attached. It's been a while since I had to use that, but yeah, Premiere has everything built in now. But yeah. Know. Premiere is not a cheap product, right? Even you're trying to maintain, you know, a neighbor's machine. Yeah. There's just the codex done, right? And all these things on their own is good, but being able to get them in one shot, that's very cool. So Great. I, thought it, I thought it was a nice add to the whole conversation we had back with Justin ba- uh, back in the day. Yeah. Is Visual Studio 2017 in that list? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. 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 Oh, well. Uh, so, Joel, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on their website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. Plus. If you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We like to... Uh, eat chocolatey nougat with them. I don't know. I can't think of these things all the time. That's not what I'm paid for. <laughs> you, could you try bucks. coming up with a stupid joke every week, three times a week? All right. First world problems. Let's bring on Justin James. He loves to code and teach. He's been programming and designing web applications for over 20 years now. And Justin loves to share his knowledge with others to get them to their end goal faster. He's a frequent speaker at conferences, meetups, and community events. He's also part of the Arizona Give Camp organization, where they put on hackathons for developers to code it forward to help nonprofits with their IT needs. And uh, I think one of those might be um, yours, Richard. <laughs> uh, he lives in Arizona and has worked for Intel for almost 20 years. And at Intel, he's part of an amazing department called Freelance Nation where he gets to freelance around the company, picking work that intersects with passions, skills, and company needs while passing on the work that doesn't excite him. (laughs) Hmm. Very cool job. Uh, Welcome back, Justin. Thank you. And it is a fantastic job. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think we talked a little bit about this last time we talked in at NDC in June uh, last year, 2015, and uh, it, it sounded good then, and it still sounds good. Do you have to make up stupid jokes three times a week <laughs> at your job? Who would do that? Not yet, but I'm talking about starting a podcast internally, so maybe. Oh, there, there you go. go. <laughs> It'll happen. You know, you, your life has changed when your meetings consist of, no, that's not stupid enough, or that's mm. too funny, or, uh, yeah. What else do you got? Um, I love the fact that we're talking about Ionic because a team that works for AppV Next built an application for a customer with Ionic and the customer loved it and the developer did a great job and was able to use a hockey app to get updates out to them uh, quickly and easily. And it was just a painless process. It, it was top notch, A1 all the way. So I'm, I'm glad that we can dive into this a little bit. Me too. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And certainly Ionic is a good choice if you're a JavaScript HTML developer, right? I mean, there are other ways to get um, native applications out of HTML and JavaScript. And I'm thinking of the, you know, going straight Cordoba or the Telerik platform or uh, native script or any of the other of those frameworks that are sort of HTML and JavaScripty. But what makes Ionic different? And I realize that it, it, I think it does use Cordova under the hood, right? It does. So Cordova is just the middleware product that takes all of your code and bundles it up into the native package to put in the app store. Mm. But it doesn't come with any kind of UI controls. Mm. And so you have to design your UI, which isn't difficult, but it's difficult when you try to do it for every device and try to get the CSS just right so it looks like an Apple product. It looks like an Android version. It looks like a Windows version. That's a lot of code. Ionic does all that for you. I need a grid on it. I just drop the grid on and 
I don't have to do any of the work. I just get to program my app and all my code and I yeah. don't have to worry about making the UI look correct. And Ionic can be used for that matter for just browser-based applications too, right? It doesn't have to be a native app, but that's really where it excels. It doesn't have to be a native app. The thing that kind of misses though when you do just pure browser-based is it looks like a mobile version on your desktop now. Yeah. Hmm. You don't get the typical headers and footers and navigation stuff that you would get on a desktop version of a website. Right. You get the mobile look and feel. Yeah. There are a lot of other tools in this milieu. And one I'm thinking of is, you know, Kendo UI with the Telerik platform. Obviously, they were a sponsor for a long, long time. And we like their products. The, I mean, that they sort of did the same idea, which is, you know, make the UI components look like they should look on the platform and act like they should act on the platform. And then, you know, Cordova underneath. And one of the biggest things Ionic did that a lot of the other frameworks didn't do is they were mobile first. Hmm. A lot of the other frameworks were not. They just happened to work on responsive and they would work on the mobile device. Hmm. But that wasn't their primary platform that they typically launched on. Mm. And so you didn't get sometimes the look and feel or their performance. It's where Ionic really did focus on all of that stuff, especially performance. They got rid of a lot of the slowness. That's how Cordova originally got kind of a bad name to it is people were implementing jQuery mobile and other stuff like that that was very DOM intensive. Right. And that was really slow on mobile devices. Yeah. So Ionic's sure. all mobile first and doesn't do DOM first on their simple stuff like in Angular, if you bind a thousand things in an ng repeat loop, it takes quite a bit of time to render that on a mobile device. They had a collection repeat thing that did the same thing, but it only bound what you could see in your view. And as you scrolled up, it continued to show the rest of the stuff in the UI. So you didn't have any kind of jankiness or stuttering as you were playing with the UI. You know, that was an issue that I remember this project we ran up against with Ionic. And I'm not sure why, because I wasn't doing the development, but... Um, it was the sort of idea where you have a lot of things in a list and we had to manage the memory because, uh, as you scrolled through that list, you're, you want to be able to scroll smoothly and without the jankiness, as you say, but you also want it to look like everything's available all the time, you know? So, so you have to sort of manage what gets loaded in advance and, uh, when to remove things from memory. Do you still have to do that kind of thing in Ionic? I have not in Ionic. With that collection repeat that I mentioned, my demo that I typically show off with that, I bind a thousand items into a list. I show it with ng4 and it takes five to 10 seconds. And as huh. I scroll, it's really slow. Throw a collection repeat on there. It instantly shows up in the UI. And as I scroll through it, it doesn't pause at all. It looks like all the data has been there the whole time. But as I'm scrolling, it's binding more data to it. That's great. That's a great solution. That may be the solution that our developer did to take care of that problem. Um, what about React? I mean, this is obviously something people are going to compare it to, React Native. What's the difference here? So I always say with all the other frameworks, if they meet your needs, go for it. And if you're in Angular Shop, Ionic makes total sense. If you're already doing React for the web, then definitely look at React Native. That's where your tool set already is. No sense in learning a new technology just to learn a new technology to be mobile. Right. Kind of the same thing with the Xamarin piece. Yeah. If you're C-sharp and you're doing lots of XAML and that's where your, your team is and where you're at, definitely look at Xamarin. No sense in trying to teach yourself web skills just to do a mobile app when all those other tools will work if they fit with what you already kind of know. I see that Ionic's just gotten to V2. Have you had a chance to play with the latest bits? I have played with the latest bit. It's quite a bit and definitely a fan of where they are going with it. It's based off of Angular 2. So I've been doing a lot of stuff in the Angular 2 space lately. I'm actually really liking Angular 2. When I first started with TypeScript, I was kind of on the fence. I was like, yeah, it just kind of feels like a rebranded C-sharp right. kind of a feel with JavaScript. And as I've played with it, I actually really like it and find that it's a lot easier than I was expecting. What are some of the differences between um, Ionic 2 and 1? So with 1, they started to get there with making everything look right on the platforms. Mm -hmm. But a few things were kind of missing. Simple stuff like icons didn't change. So you, with a few lines of code, you could change your icons to put the iOS version or the Android version. 
Now they do all that for you. I just dropped the same icon on there behind the scenes. The icon magically changes to the one that belongs on that device. Hmm, nice. Which was really nice. They also fixed a few of their other things to make it look right, like the grids. It's, so I didn't know for the longest time being an iOS user that there's no right arrow when you're supposed to click on the row in the grid to go to the next page. Mm. It's, it's only an iOS. It's not an Android. Mm. I never knew that. Two came out and I thought my code was broken because they automatically took care of that. Nowhere did I tell it to put the right arrow and make it a little bit grayer and smaller so it's not in the forefront. Yeah. They took care of all of that work for you. And so a lot of their controls, the stuff that you kind of had to manipulate just a little bit, they've taken care of manipulating all that for you even more. So a lot less code that I had to write hmm. on a platform by platform basis just for that last few tweaks. They're, they're getting all of those in there for us. How much CSS and HTML and JavaScript do you actually end up writing? The same amount that I would write if I was doing an Angular app for the web. Okay. Ah, that really nails it. Yeah. So I didn't have to do anything that was device specific. That's important. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me look like I actually could create a nice looking UI. That was one of the things that initially attracted me to Ionic, besides the fact I was already doing Angular and they were Angular, is all their controls looked nice out of the box. Yeah. I'm more of the middle tier backing guy that can do a decent looking front end, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to be the one that makes it look nice and pretty. Ionic made it look nice and pretty for me. Nice. Just right out of the box. And appropriate for each device as well. So I mean, they've gone well beyond what Angular does. Yes. And Ionic 2 also supports Windows phones finally. Oh my. Now that it doesn't matter. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. Oh, geez, did I say that out loud? That's not right. <laughs> I know. It's, only, it's always been like five or so percent of the, the market. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. I agree. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's tough. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify Prefix, an insanely cool and transparent and free profiler for developers. It runs in the background and catches bugs, including exceptions that get caught and thrown away before anyone knows you wrote them. Get detailed traces of every request. There's no messy configuration or code requirements, and best of all, it's fast and transparent. Hey, did I mention it's free? And not free like a puppy, free like beer. Download it now at prefix.netrocks.com. So we've got a lot of listeners that use Visual Studio, obviously. Is there Ionic support in Visual Studio? There's quite a bit of support in Visual Studio. So they have something called Taco, which is tools for Apache Cordova. Yep. So that takes care of all of the bundling that you need for Cordova so that it'll spit out your iOS and Android versions. They've got an emulator called Ripple that's built in. So you can do all your typical web debugging that you can do in Visual Studio. Yep. To get started with Ionic, they have a template pack in the Visual Studio gallery. So you, hmm. you install that and it'll create all your projects for you. Hmm. What's really nice is they're fully compatible with the command line. So if you start with the command line version of Ionic, you can just import that project right into Visual Studio. If you decide you need something on the command line that Visual Studio doesn't offer, you can still go back to the command line and they're all going to play nice together. That's wow. good. And so you, let's say you've got uh, your a couple of pages and you want to do a test app. Um, what are your options for getting that onto a device and looking at it? I'm, I mentioned Hockey App before. That's what we used. Is that, is, is that the, uh, the, the primary channel? So if you want to go specific to users and go through that process, absolutely. The one downside of that process is you're limited to how many users you can put in per year. Right. Mm. So Ionic actually has something called the Ionic View, where you basically upload your app to their kind of cloud infrastructure. You get, get a little six-digit code. You give that to your customer. They download Ionic View, put in that code, and it lets them play with the application right inside of the Ionic View without ever having to distribute your app to either Hockey App or an App Store or anything. Oh, that's oh. cool. So this is a wrapper that, they, that you can load on any device, and then it'll go get the app and run within the wrapper. Yep. That's really smart. I mean, it's essentially what Cordova is, right? Uh, it's, a sh it's a little shim, but this sounds like a multi-app shim. Yep. So you can put as many apps in there and you can download as many as you want to test out and play with them. 
The only limitation is they only have about 10 or so of the Cordova plugins for device interactions. Hmm. But the average app doesn't do a lot of device interactions. They have the standard ones like network and battery and GPS and camera and yeah, stuff like that's available within their Ionic view. Right. If you start going outside of that, you know, they have a list of it on their, their site, of what's hmm. supported and not. It's like the 80, 20 kind of rule. Yep. 80% of my stuff's going to work. Yeah. And then outside of that, if you, for development, Visual Studio has an Android emulator that's mm-hmm. Hyper-V based. Yeah. That works fantastic. Love that, that one. And then if you need to get onto an iOS device, you still have to have a Mac, whether it's a physical one, it's a Mac in the cloud, but right mm. from Visual Studio, I can tell it go deploy to that. It'll send all my code over to the Mac, do all the builds, and I can either launch the simulator on the Mac or I can connect an iOS device to my Windows machine and tell it to deploy to that machine. And then once it's done compiling on the Mac, it sends it back, starts up all the debugging. And so I can do full debugging through that whole channel and not have to actually attach my iOS device to a Mac, which is really handy if you're using Mac in the cloud because you obviously don't have yeah. a physical device to attach it to. Yeah. Mac in cloud's pretty cool. I've been using it lately. I like yeah, it. It's a great option. Yeah. And price-wise, if you're not doing a ton of stuff other than I need to test out my iOS apps, the cost is fantastic. I priced mm. it out not long ago. It was going to be like three years of like eight hours a day of usage before I eclipsed the cost of buying the a decent Mac. It's a dollar an hour, basically. Yeah. It's a dollar an hour. Or if you bought it on their monthly plan, it's like 20 bucks a month for like three hours a day of logging in. And like eight hours was only like $30. Yep. And what's a Mac mini going for these days? 600 bucks? Like 600 is like on the cheap side. Yeah. Sort of the bare metal one, right? Yep. Yeah. Last time I priced one up that I would want to potentially do development on, it was somewhere in the 800 to $1,000 range. It was... Yeah. Starting to get outside of that. I'm not sure I want to put out that much money just to have a machine to occasionally throw an iOS app over to. You know, it's funny. Carl earlier, I guess when we were working on the uh the winning for the uh the the five thousand dollar winner was complaining about how annoying the Apple app site was because it just doesn't let you just buy something. And I just had that experience because I'm like, oh, the Mac Mini, how much was that? And I went to the site and I go to click on just getting the Mac Mini and oh no, it wants me to compare it to another device. I'm like, I don't want to compare it to another device. I would like to look at this device. Oh, uh, they don't have that option. And speaking of the $5,000 winner, we're going to announce that tomorrow on tomorrow's show. Yes. Yeah. Here it is. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Very exciting. But yeah, you know, they are still elegant devices, but uh, yeah, $1,000 for just testing software, that's a 1,000 hours on Mac in the cloud. Exactly. And it's tough the fact that I get a Windows laptop from work for free. Yeah. So it's hard to go out and buy the Mac that I'm only going to use a few hours a week. I have not made that purchase yet. Yeah. The other aspect of that is testing touch on your iOS app. Right. The Xamarin guys had a solution to that. Do you have a way to test the touch on your iOS app through through any emulators or anything? On a Mac, no. Luckily enough, because I normally when I do this process, I have my iPhone attached to my Windows machine so I can just test it right there. Right. So I automatically get touch with that. I've got a touch screen on my Windows machine. So that definitely helps out with trying to test in the browser, test in the Android side of it. Right. But I definitely noticed that they didn't have the iOS simulator for Windows like Xamarin had. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now that it's with Studio, it might be extensive. Just go get the remote iOS simulator for Windows. But you do need a Mac to make that work, right? You do need a Mac to make that work. And I actually hadn't heard about that one. And you mentioned it on a recent show. Yeah. When I, was, I went and looked it up. And I can only imagine that it's just going to be a matter of time before they have it available for the Apache Cordova tools. That tool suite is coming around quite a bit. I remember playing with it a year ago and it definitely was not ready for prime time. I had all kinds of issues and I tried it again about six months ago and it worked fantastic. Hmm. In fact, I spent the summer going around, did like six talks on the taco tools and, and stuff. They were working fantastic now. Yeah. This, you know, the pressure to make good cross-platform mobile development is getting serious. Like it's, yep. it's time and it's, it can't be only doable by rocket scientists. Regular developers need to be able to build mobile apps and this yep. stuff just needs to work. And the nice part is 
Ionic has a full command line. So if you're not a Visual Studio user or you're not on Windows, you can do everything that you need from the command line for from your building, you're deploying to emulators and devices. I use Visual Studio Code for quite a bit of my Ionic development. Mm -hmm. It works fantastic. And they have the Apache Cordova tooling is an extension that Microsoft made available for Visual Studio Code as well. Nice. So you don't have to involve Studio in this at all if you don't want to. You don't have to involve it at all. It just makes it so I don't have to drop to the command line and say, Ionic, run and give it either emulator or device. Yeah. I just click the button in Visual Studio and it magically does it. And it starts up the debugger. Nice. Nice piece. The downside to me of the debugger, at least when you're doing it, the browser side of it, I'm a Chrome user that likes to click, right click and say inspect and open, go yeah. through that tool suite. Well, Chrome doesn't like it when you have more than one thing attached to it. So it instantly exits my debuggers. Because oh, no. That's I'm annoying. Like, Thanks, Chrome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah, I guess a lot of this could be, you could build a lot of the your app just straight in a browser before yeah. actually going and starting to test on dev- on your devices. And I definitely do probably 90% of my code mm-hmm. and test all in the browser. Ionic includes a really cool command line and parameter called dash dash lab. It'll open up a page that has iOS, Android, and Windows views side by side in the browser. And, and you can play and see what each view is going to actually do. Wow. That's cool. Hmm. Yeah. Makes it really handy to get it. And it's, again, the 80-20 rule. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. Obviously, it's a laptop versus a phone but at least saves a ton of time but i think it makes sense i mean i'm a big believer in this idea of how do we get the cycle time down that you can write a little run a little see it on the device see it on something device ish like it's certainly the same form factor you know that kind of thing and and every time we have to push out to a device even through hockey app or any of these tools heck even through the emulator to the emulator you're right to the emulator takes time yep Yep, it's two to three minutes, even on a decent machine, to do all the compilations and push it through the USB to the device or the emulator. Yeah. So we have a reason to have faster and faster machines now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's Wh- which I totally love, working at Intel. It's like, buy all the chips. Keep uh, buying yes. the chips. <laughs> the chips are all around employed. you. <laughs> yeah. More chips. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to point out a new service I use, and I really love it. Mm-hmm. It's called Flack in Cloud. Slack in Cloud. Flack, yeah, with an F. And basically, anytime you're feeling like uh, you're kind of useless and you need somebody to yell at you and, de- and demean you and berate you, you go to this service and you get your fix. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Really? <laughs> All right. <laughs> they only laughed because of its dumbness. Actually, it's time to give away a Music to Code by Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code by, of course, is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. They'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And .NET Rocks fans all over the world are being much more productive with Music to Code by, and now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only 39 bucks. See what all this fuss is about. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Scott Rudy. Hi, congratulations, Scott. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Scott Rudy. And Scott just won the Music to Code By Complete Collection, a big pile of awesome from Music to Code By. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Justin, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today... What would you buy? The one thing I've been really looking at is Troy Hunt has a whole blog post about a fantastic Lenovo laptop. It's either the T50 or the T90. And it basically, it's a, about a $3,000 machine where I can put a Xeon chip or a i7 into a laptop with 64 gigs of memory. Wow. Oh, it's his P50. Yeah, okay. Yeah. A fantastic looking machine. So I've been eyeing one of those. I've run a lot of virtual machines, but I've 
limited to 16 gigs of memory. So I get one and a half machines and hope that VMware doesn't crash. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can go all the way with those machines, right? Like oh, you yeah. can put 64 gigs of RAM in it and 10 cores, and then you can do whatever the heck you want. How many VMs would you like to run? Exactly. And so last time I priced one out, it was right around 3000 And with the rest, I'd get like an iPad Pro. I've got an iPad 2, so it's starting to show its age quite a bit. So yep. Love to get a new one. And then I get some Xbox games and some accessories. I finally hooked up my Xbox One, but I've got like one game for it. So it'd be fantastic to get some more. Yeah, it's a nice collection of stuff, Justin. Yeah. And, you know, all, all just a general upgrade of all your goodness. Yep. And, exactly. uh, and again, if you want to tune in to see who won the $5,000 shopping spree, it's coming out tomorrow, tomorrow's show. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And speaking of Angular, uh, tomorrow we're talking to Jules Kremer about uh, managing Angular. So that should be a great show all yeah. around. Yeah, you should be good fun. Yeah. So speaking of Angular, um, you said I don't really have to do anything more than I would normally do on an Angular website. So I, I guess what you're saying is that I build the app itself with Angular and I use the controls from Ionic to make it, give it the mobile look and feel. And then the Ionic framework turns that into a native app with Cordova, right? It's a very accurate description. All right. And instead of doing divs and other stuff to create like a grid or something else, I drop on the Ionic equivalent of that control that I would normally program by hand, and then I just bind my data to it. So it's really draggy droppy. It's very kind of, I don't want to call it draggy droppy because they're not really a drag and drop interface, but it's yeah. just as easy as a bunch of directives is what they used to be called in yeah. Angular 1, and now they're components. So I just use their components and wow, just that's bind great. data to it. Yeah, same thing as like NG2 Bootstrap or any of the other Angular 2 mm -hmm. components that are reusable. Mm -hmm. That's what Ionic gives as well as all of that command line goodness to go with it. Yeah, yeah. And are you coding in ES6, ES5, or TypeScript? Like what's your normal programming environment then? For Angular 2 and Ionic 2, it's all TypeScript. It's all TypeScript, okay. Yeah, Angular loves TypeScript. Well, Angular is written in TypeScript. Now, the Ionic team initially was not sold on TypeScript, and they've kind of come around and have come out in some tweets and stuff and say they really like TypeScript, and they're all in on it as well. And, yeah. it, and it, I think this came down to just sustainability of your project, right? When you have many contributors and a lot of code, just the, the ability to do a bunch of that static typing and things, catch more problems at compile. Yes, and the Angular 2 error throwing is so much better as well. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Angular 1 used to swallow a lot of stuff, so you'd get the kind of white screen of death and wonder, what did I break? What happened? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where did Angular it go? You still get the white screen in a lot of cases in Angular 2, but now in the console, it throws out what the actual error was. Nice. Okay. Hmm. So, at least it may still break, but at least it breaks in a way you can understand it. Exactly. And everything I'm reading here is that, you know, where Angular 1 to Angular 2 was a huge controversy because it was such a big change. The... Ionic 1 to Ionic 2 doesn't seem to have anywhere near the same kind of drama. Yes, they definitely don't have the same drama. I think Angular t took the brunt of that drama. Right. How hard is it to migrate an Ionic 1 app to Ionic 2? I think it's more about how hard is it to migrate Angular 1 to Angular 2. Right, which is to say is hard. Is Yeah, it's not something that most people suggest doing. Right. Definitely, I think in the Ionic space, I have not seen anything about trying to run Ionic 1 and 2 in the same space. Mm -hmm. I would venture just to, that Ionic 1, just like Angular 1, is not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't start new apps in it. Now, Ionic 2 right now is at a release candidate. And they've been keeping up for the most part with Angular all the way until the very end when in like a six-week period, Angular jumped like two release candidates and the released version. And I was like, okay, now everyone's kind of behind. And, but we've got two or three release candidates now. And release candidates in the Ionic space are true release candidates. Not like, not like some English people space. we know. I mean, who would do that? That's just <laughs> yeah. not right. Yep. Uh, I don't know how we got to be so suspicious, but it is it is unfortunate, right? Like, can we can we have betas that are betas and RCs that are RCs? You know, there's one thing that we really haven't said here, which is Ionic uh, is open source. Very very true. Yeah. The, the framework they have said will always be open source, always be free. 
they are still a company though, so they still have to make money somehow. Right. And how do they do that? Their goal is to provide tools that you want to use. They're fully optional. It's not going to be like, oh, we're only going to give you part of the framework and you got to pay us for the rest. Yeah. Oh, instead they're looking at tools, stuff like making push notifications easier, doing a really cool one called deploy, or because it's all web-based stuff, there's no need to go through the app store just to change some HTML text or a CSS. So as long as you're not doing binary changes, which is adding more Cordova plugins, which are interactions with devices, hmm. I can just upload my changes to the Ionic servers. Next time you open my app, it's going to tell you, hey, there's an update. In live, it's going to pull all those changes down and update the app, and I get to skip the app store. So that's a really cool one, especially if you have to wait two or three weeks if you went through the app store just to make a few changes. Right. I can do that live. They've got built or package, sorry, which is builds. So Basically, you can get them to build all of your stuff for Android, iOS, even if you're not on a Mac. Does that all in the cloud. They have authentication suites. They have a new Ionic DB one, which looks like it's going to be kind of a real-time JSON database. Seems to be very similar to Firebase. Huh. It's, and the pricing structure is fantastic. If you're an indie developer, you can actually start at $0, get 10,000 push notifications, 5,000 live deploys. Wow. 100 package builds and unlimited authentication users. All right. So totally usable at the zero price point. Exactly. Mm. But if you get to some level of success and, you know, traffic starts going up, then you, you turn the knob up. Exactly. And the first knob setting is still pretty decent. It goes to 20 bucks per month per app and you get a million push notifications, 100,000 live deploys to devices and 500 package builds. Wow. That's very reasonable. And then it's just a, you just dial up from there. And you just dial it from there. Yeah. Eight cents a thousand or 25 cents a thousand, depending on the service. Like, yeah, okay. But if you, let's face it, if you've got a million devices to deploy to, you've got a good problem and you could afford a couple hundred bucks a month for it. So you need to install Node, right? Node.js. Exactly. You do need to install Node.js. And that is local. You install that on your local machine. Yep. You install that on your local machine. The okay. Nice part is when it packages everything up. There's nothing to install outside of your app on the actual device. Mm. Everything runs within a web view on the device. Right. Mm -hmm. And you use NPM to install it, right? Yep. Use NPM to install it. Okay. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm looking at, uh, as I said, we've, we've got an app in the app store that uses it. And uh, I've, I'm looking at some of the other showcase apps and they're beautiful. I mean, there's, these are apps. These are native apps. There's no... Uh, I never had the feeling of that uncanny valley that we talked about over the years where, you know, it just doesn't feel responsive and it doesn't feel, um, you know, like a native app. Yep. I yeah. always love to show off an app called Swork It. It's a fitness app. Yeah, that's one of the ones on their showcase yeah, page. Every time I bring that up, you'd never know if I didn't tell you it was Ionic based that it was. Yeah. It looks totally native. They bring down videos for you. So essentially with the app, you tell it what kind of workout you want to do, how long you want to do it. And it does 30 seconds on 30 seconds off. And it shows you a video before each of the exercises uses and shows it while the timer is going. And I've never had it stutter once. Hmm. Hmm. It looks it. fantastic. They even managed to get funding for it. They were on Shark Tank oh, this no last kidding. year. Yeah. They got a whole bunch of funding wow. for their app. So um, here's another question maybe people don't know the answer to, and that is, do any of these frameworks, Ionic or anything else, give you any kind of assistance when trying to uh, upload your app to the App Store, submit it to the App Store? Is there is there any guidance or assistance there? Or is it, that, if, is it just that it's a pretty simple process for everybody to go through? It's a pretty simple process to go through. You got to sign it just like you normally do for all the other the yeah. frameworks. Yeah. And Ionic is very, very well documented. So mm. they have step-by-step -step for that stuff. They also have an extremely active Slack channel. Yeah. To the point that I actually turn off the notifications because I'm one of those people that doesn't like to see the red. You have something unread. Mark, right. And it's red 100% of the time. 
So you it's know, constant. Ha- half the battle yeah. is learning what you can and cannot have in an app and what will be accepted and what won't be accepted, right? I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised at the stuff that Apple says is a no-go. But unless you do that research up front, you're not going to find out until you deploy it. Yeah. And even sometimes when you do the re- research, it just depends on the reviewer. Right. Yeah. Years ago, I had a side business with some friends and one of our apps got rejected because they didn't like the navigation. I was like, wait, we base this off the same exact navigation on like 10 other big apps in your store. Right. It's just the reviewer didn't like the way that was looked. That's unfortunate. I've heard people say that's happening less and less than it used to, which is good. Yeah, that is good. Well, there's been this recent story about how they, you know, they're discovering that the Apple app store checking process is not as thorough as you thought. They're, there has been a wave of viruses now, and they're sort of realizing this is kind of a fickle process. Oh, really? Wow, I totally missed that news thread. But um, it doesn't surprise me, though, with the volume of apps that they're they're getting through the store. And I remember, Richard, you used to complain a lot that it was just, you, you know, you used to be able to just browse for things and search for things and find them, and then it just got ridiculous. Yeah. Searching an app store is is something probably not a lot of people do anymore. It's Typi- worthless. Typically what you do is you search the web and you find the stuff that people are using, you find an app and then you get a hard link to some to a place in the app store. Yes, it's very rare that the search actually finds what I'm looking for. Happens yep. occasionally though. And certainly from a vendor perspective, from you trying to make an app, you know, the app store is not going to help you. No. No. And you know, should we expect it to really? I mean, uh, it's just a giant list of apps. Yeah, and it is very giant, millions now. Right. So I would much prefer to rely on, you know, what other people are saying about a particular app or what my social networks are saying about it, that kind of thing. Yeah. And a lot of that's putting the right description, the right keyword and stuff into the app store so that when people do search, at least you have a little bit better chance of potentially coming up in their search results. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the what are some of the challenges that people might have with Ionic if they're not used to uh, the way things work? So if you're not used to using the command line and you're not used to like Gulp and now Webpack and those kinds of tools, it might be a little bit confusing. The one piece where I, I liked Ionic more than Angular initially, I didn't have to learn the tooling for Ionic. They really did focus on just make the tool work. If I do Ionic serve, it just magically works as long as I have Node installed. So there's not a yeah. lot of upturn into into that. The biggest thing was just really learning the actual Angular 2 and Angular 1 framework, depending on which version of Ionic you choose. That was the one of the harder pieces. The other one where Visual Studio fixed some of it for you with their taco tooling, but it was all the dependencies. That was one of the first things I noticed when I started presenting on Ionic and getting into it. Everyone kind of stopped it, npm install Ionic. Mm-hmm. Well, that only gets you the browser. I still need the Android SDK. I still need the Java SDK on there at a minimum just to be able to, to get going. And then there's some other build tools in there like Gradle and it used to be Ant. And stuff. On the iOS side, I still need Xcode. I still need the command line tools for, for Xcode. Yeah. So trying to figure out how to get all that stuff installed and the, the right stuff onto your system path can definitely be but, quite confusing. But that's confusing no matter what framework or technology you're using. I mean, you have to go through that with Xamarin tools as well. I mean, not so much because their installer installs the Android SDK and the JDK and all that. But but you, those are things that you still have to know because you're essentially writing for multiple platforms, you have to do a little homework. Yeah, the nice part that with Ionic is once you get those installed, you don't even have to worry about anything with them. All of the tooling that comes with Ionic abstracts that away. So that's where it's kind of nice using the Visual Studio Taco tooling is they install all of those dependencies for you so that you don't even have to worry about it. You just check the box. Yeah. And that's sort of the same experience with the Xamarin stuff as well. Yeah. Which is nice. On my blog, a couple of the highest viewed posts are actually all the install steps. So I have both Ionic 1 and Ionic 2 posts for how to set up 
Windows and Mac. Hmm. It walks you step by step through how to do it. Windows uses Chocolatey since I'm a Windows user and love Chocolatey. Yeah, right. Mac, I'm not a not a Mac user, so everything is definitely step by step there. But with nice pictures and and stuff, it just doesn't say install the Android SDK. It's like here's where you go to download it. Here's the things to run, and yeah. if you follow that, you will be up and running. Thankfully, it doesn't take much time to do the steps. Most of the time, it's downloading the SDKs, which are quite big. Right. Just looking through all the components, there's some nice stuff here. I mean, it's mostly primitive components, right? But uh, but that's all you need for the most part. Um, and then you said there's this whole ecosystem of of things that you can buy and add on. We we started to we we touched on a few of those, but uh, I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that we didn't? On the note of buying stuff, seeing stuff. They also have an Ionic Marketplace where developers like us can create either themes, components, starter kits, and you can upload them there, there and either give them away for free or you can charge for them. And the Ionic guys take care of all the hosting for you and they take none of the money. All the money goes back to you. It's hmm. kind of a nice little feature that they threw up there for us. Nice. Hmm. Hey, have you tried to deploy to any other platforms besides sort of iOS, Android? Like, Cordova's got comprehensive support for BlackBerry. Not that I see a ton of demand, but it'd be interesting to see how it behaves. I have not tr tried it. I know in the Ionic 1 space, I looked at it for Windows stuff quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it definitely wasn't there. They didn't have all the resizing stuff in there. So it was one of those... We don't guarantee it will not right. work, but we don't guarantee it will work. And if it doesn't work, you're on your own. Yeah, we're not going to help you. <laughs> yeah, that's the biggest thing is putting in all the CSS so that all the th things look right. Even just simple stuff that when a page loads, which directions is the page loaded and what's the animations and the drop shadows? Ionic takes care of all of that for you so it looks like you truly are a native app. Right. If you went to like BlackBerry, you would have to program a lot of that CSS code to do the re-rendering and stuff. nothing would stop you. It'd just be right. you actually writing all of that CSS. But now you're outside of Ionic. And, you know, in theory, Cordova supports this, but it doesn't mean Ionic does. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't blame them between Android and iOS. It's 90 plus percent of the market. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It, it's, you know, one of the arguments for Cordova was it had this broader reach to devices in other markets, but it just doesn't seem to matter. Yeah, it definitely doesn't matter. I think today it's more about what technology does your team already know. Sure. All the frameworks are great. I'm also appreciating absorbing the variations in Android, which seems to be the bigger issue. When I talk to native Android developers, that's what they're fighting is there's too many versions of Android. iOS guys just don't seem to have this problem because Apple is so militant about forcing upgrades. But uh, but Android folks, boy, you know the, the spread of versions is big. Yeah. Yes. And so in the Ionic world to pat that, they have something called Crosswalk. It's essentially a Cordova add-in that packages the Google engine, the Chromium engine, along with your apps. So you, the downside is you get a bigger app that you put in the app store. The upside is you're guaranteed what the rendering engine is going to be. Mm. Right. And it used to be before it was Android 4.4, it was up to each of the manufacturers for what rendering engine they decided to put on their device. So it was never standard. Right. They they went to the standard one after 4.4, but I've heard from a lot of friends that are deploying stuff that they still use Crosswalk because they're still finding just little nuances of stuff that doesn't work. Hmm. And with Crosswalk, they get the guarantee of what it's going to look like, what the performance is going to be like, so they don't spend all their time doing troubleshooting just to realize, oh, it's a device issue. Yeah, that's fair. Well, Justin, where's your blog? Sounds like you got some good content up there. It's a digitaldrummerj.me. Okay, you're a drummer? I am a drummer. Hey, I got a joke for you. What do you call a drummer with no girlfriend? Homeless. <laughs> nice. I, I can say that because I'm also a drummer. <laughs> what, do you, uh, what did the drummer get on his SATs? Drool. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> All right, no offense. What do, what uh, what kind of music do you play? I've done everything from 60s and 70s Motown cover bands to original 
kind of a punk rock metal kind of thing. Awesome. Everything in between. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. So if we ever find ourselves at a conference where they have a, a, a jam, we'll have to uh, we'll have to play. Absolutely. That sounds good. Uh, any other places that you're going to be in 2017 that you want to talk about or plug or anything else you want to plug for that matter? I don't have anything speaking wise lined up for 2017 yet. I am still looking. There's definitely some CFPs that I saw recently. So hopefully I will be out and about. Definitely going to kind of curtail it back a little for 2017 for, mm. for speaking. I'm trying to think how do I reach a broader audience and looking at potentially, do I try to be finally finish the process to become a Pluralsight author? Yeah. I started that a few years ago and it, they've been fantastic to work with, but because I haven't been doing anything with it, it hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah. Right. So I've been looking at those kind of angles. I think my family would love it if I traveled a little bit less. We've had some crazy yeah. family stuff go on the second half of this year. So they were very thankful that I didn't have anything lined up and was able to be home instead of traveling. Yeah, I hear that. So I'm definitely looking at that that kind of an, an angle. And it would give me time to do more side projects. Right. I foolishly originally thought, I don't have a whole lot of time to do side projects. Let me get into speaking. That seems like it'd take less time. <laughs> yeah, I, I've learned that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, they, that's not true. They take about the same, <laughs> same amount. So I've been looking at stuff like, I've been doing stuff with the Already Project for the Humanitarian Toolbox. That's exactly. right. Yeah. So I definitely wanted to get into that more. They have an Ionic mobile app as part of Already that they definitely have a whole lot of features that they're looking for some help with. So yeah, there's lot, lots more to do there. And we're pushing to V1 on the website for January. So it's uh, it's been a very busy time. Hmm. Yes, it has. I, I ran a hackathon for the Already Project a couple weeks ago at work. And, and good times. Awesome. Thank you for that, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's been great talking to you, Justin. This is great. And I'm glad we finally got to talk about Ionic on .NET Rocks. You too. Thank you for having me. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.